0: Annalise, what did the bald guy say when he was given a comb for his birthday?
1: I don't know, Blake. What did he say?
0: Thanks. I'll never part with it. Get it?
1: (laughs) Hmm. And welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Dr Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute.
0: And I am Dr. Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute.
1: As Blake has artfully alluded, this episode is all about hair. In particular, the absence of it.
0: In fact, we have so much to share about hair that this is the first of two podcasts where we will explore a range of common hair loss disorders.
1: As a reminder for our GP listeners, Spot Diagnosis has been accredited with ROCGP and ACRAM. There is one CPD point per episode, so approximately 9 to 10 points per season. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, listen to all the episodes, and fill in a brief evaluation form on spotdiagnosis.org.au. That is spotdiagnosis.org.au.
0: We are especially lucky today to have two hair spurts, that is, two hair experts, joining us. In the studio with us today, we have Dr. Jack Green and Dr. Jane Lee. Jack and Jane are specialist dermatologists with a particular interest in hair disorders. They help run the Hair Disorders Clinic at the Skin Health Institute. Welcome, Jane and Jack.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. This is certainly a big topic today. Let's start at the beginning. Where does hair come from?
3: Well, hair is what's called an ectodermal structure. So in the developing embryo, it's part of the ectodermal layer. So it's an appendageal structure. And so it's related to nails, teeth and sweat glands.
1: Is hair just an appendage or does it serve a function?
3: Good question. Well, in animals, they have various functions. Apart from protection, they also trap air next to the skin and lead to thermal regulation. Using a part of the hair shaft called the medulla, which runs longitudinally through it and containing air. Going back to protection, if you're a bald guy like me, you know that you knock your head all the time because you don't get a tactile warning if you're about to hit something when it touches your hair first. And the double whammy is that bald guys get skin cancer on their scalp. Another function is protection from sweat running down your face. And for those who have alopecia areata, where they lose their eyebrows, that can be a problem. Losing eyelashes can be a real issue as when eyes can get irritated when you can't keep the dust out.
2: A healthy head of hair also acts as a signal of youth and vitality. So when patients lose their hair, it can have a deep psychological impact.
1: How many hairs do we actually have on the body?
3: Well, there's at least one million all over the body, and 100,000 of those are on the scalp.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Walking down the street, I noticed that there are lots of different types of hair, particularly in multicultural Melbourne. What accounts for the different types of hairs in different races? Actually, the
3: shape of the hair follicle is different in different races, and so is the shape of the hair shaft. In Asians, it is rounder and also larger, and the hair shaft is also quite straight. In Caucasian, it's more oval, a little bit smaller, and does have a tendency to more waviness. And in those of African descent, the hair is flatter, curlier, and actually weaker. And there are particular hairdressers who deal specifically with African hair because it requires specialised
0: handling. And what about hair colour? What causes the variation we see between individuals?
2: Natural hair colour is determined by the amount and type of pigment found in each shaft of hair. There are two possible pigments, eumelanin, which is responsible for black and brown hair, and pheomelanin, which is found in blonde and red hair. When we age, less pigment is produced, so hair is grey or white. Hair colour also links in
1: with our identity. I, for one, have enjoyed expressing myself with different hair colours. How else do you see hair linking in with our identity?
3: Indeed, hair is very much wrapped up with our identity. And there are various aspects to this. It could be, in broad terms, between distinguishing between males and females with different secondary sexual distribution of their hair, males sporting facial hair, females not, And when females do display hair in the typical distribution of a male that has gone through puberty, well, of course, we call this hirsutism. So those on the gender identity spectrum may not only change their hairstyle, but also may take hormones, which also changes their hair distribution. Receding men wanting to move towards a more female identity may have a hair transplant to feminize their appearance. Of course, it's also a way to tell the difference between a child and an adult. But the main function of hair these days is to keep shopping centre laser clinics in business as everyone wants to get rid of every single shred of their non-scalp hair these days.
1: We have all seen photos of people with hair down to the floor. In fact, as a teenager, I tried to grow my hair long, somewhat inspired by the story of Rapunzel. But it reached a point at my lower back where it just
2: seemed to stop. What determines hair length? Hair length is determined by the length of the growth phase of the hair, known as anagen. Scalp hair has the longest anagen period of all hairs on the body. But you are right. It is rare that anagen lasts long enough to produce hair so long it touches the floor. Scalp hair grows at about one centimeter per month. Typically, the growth phase of hair on the scalp lasts about 5 years. In this time, it will grow approximately 60 centimeters, roughly to the waist, But try as you might, your eyebrows will never reach the floor because the anagen phase of eyebrow hair is considerably shorter.
0: I'm deeply disappointed by this revelation regarding eyebrow hair. I guess now is a good time to talk about the hair cycle. What are the other phases of hair growth?
2: Each hair on the scalp is going through its own mini-life cycle, which consists of two main stages, the growth phase, called anagen, and the resting phase, called telogen. There is a short intermediate phase in between known as catagen. Only about 10% of scalp hairs are in telogen at any one time. While we know anagen lasts for several years, telogen only lasts for 100 days. During telogen, hairs lose the ability to grow any longer. So when the hair follicle cycles back into the growth phase anagen, the old resting telogen hair shaft is expelled and replaced by a new anagen hair shaft. This is a normal process to replace worn out telogen hairs and so we expect to shed about 100 hairs a day. So to summarise,
1: anagen is when there is super growth, catagen is the involutional period in between, and telogen is the resting phase before the hair falls out and the cycle begins again. Speaking
0: of hair falling out, uh, how do we classify hair loss? The broad term for
3: hair loss is alopecia and you can classify that between diffuse and patchy loss. Diffuse is generalized without a clear pattern and if there is a pattern, it's, it's more subtle. Patchy is much more discreet and may be a single patch or multiple that, if extensive, may intersect to create strange patterns and it's this odd look that is cosmetically distracting and a cause of distress to the patient. But alopecia can also be classified as scarring or non-scarring. Non-scarring is where the hair follicles have not been destroyed and there is potential for regrowth. Scarring alopecias are less commonly encountered clinically. The follicles have been replaced to varying degrees by scar tissue. Some examples of scarring alopecia include discoid lupus erythematosus and lichen planopilaris, but we will discuss these later.
0: It's time for an amazing skin tip. Alopecia can be scarring or non-scarring. Non-scarring alopecia is where the hair follicles have not been destroyed and there is potential for regrowth, whereas in scarring alopecia, the entire hair follicle has been lost and replaced with scar tissue.
1: Today, we will be focusing on diffuse hair loss
2: of the non-scarring variety. What are the main causes of diffuse hair loss? There are three main causes of diffuse hair loss that we commonly see. First, telogen effluvium, a disorder that presents with increased hair shedding. Next is androgenetic alopecia, also known as male or female pattern hair loss. And last but not least, probably the most dramatic cause of diffuse hair loss occurs post-chemotherapy, called anagen effluvium.
0: Telogen effluvium, androgenetic alopecia, anagen effluvium and expeliarmus They sound like Harry Potter. What questions do you ask someone who presents with hair loss?
2: When someone presents with hair loss, we need to determine if they are experiencing hair thinning or shedding, or both. To help characterize the hair loss, you can ask about a reduction in volume of the ponytail, compared to their teenage years. Even in diffuse hair loss, many people may notice certain areas thinning more than others, such as the temples or frontal scalp or the crown. It is also useful to get a sense if the hair loss has occurred quickly or more slowly and insidiously, or if the shedding is occurring only intermittently. Finally, is there a potential trigger for the hair shedding? This would be something that occurred about three months before the onset of hair loss. For example, were there any new medications, stressors, weight loss, major illnesses, or an operation?
0: What's the significance of the three months period?
2: As we learned earlier, this is the duration of telogen, about 100 days. When we experience a significant stressor, hairs on the scalp are prematurely sent into telogen. And when they go back into anagen, 100 days later, the hairs are dramatically shed. I think it's time for our skin tip. When a patient has telogen
1: effluvium, go hunting for a physical or psychological trigger 3-4 to months prior. I understand there's a lot to consider when examining a patient with hair loss. Are there any clues prior to examining the scalp?
3: When you clinically examine the patient, you might have a little bit of a clue from the history. I start by trying to get a general impression of the patient. I take note of their racial or ethnic background. Hair varies amongst different racial groups, as does the frequency of some causes of alopecia. Get a sense of the mood of the patient Are they very distressed about their alopecia? Are they anxious? For a sizable proportion of patients, they've been stewing on this problem for some time and have finally developed the courage to come and seek a medical opinion. It's a sensitive topic. We need to keep
0: that in mind. Dermatologists are very holistic and thorough in their examination technique. Is there anything outside of the scalp that you look at?
3: Well, in that general impression, apart from their mood, I want to get a sense of what their weight is because, for example, it could be a female with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is there a rash accompanying the alopecia? Are their nails normal? Even before I look at the hair on the scalp, I want to see if there's any extra facial hair. So is there facial hirsutism? Is there a loss of eyebrows or eyelashes? And then we get to the scalp.
1: So arriving at the scalp, what is the first thing you look for when examining it?
3: Well, that first thing I think about is, is this diffuse alopecia or a patchy alopecia? And is this a scarring alopecia or a non-scarring process? And then is the frontal hairline affected or is it spared? And if it is affected, is there a loss of follicular ostia? Is there a scarring process here? Is there perifollicular scale or erythema? Could this be frontal fibrosing alopecia or is this an androgenetic process?
0: Okay, so you've started to examine the scalp. You've overcome your initial excitement of examining the scalp and you notice there's a diffuse alopecia. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I'm thinking differential diagnosis. Is this androgenetic alopecia or a telogen effluvium? Is the hair part narrow or is it widened? And if it is widened, is there a pattern to that? Is it wider anteriorly compared to the occipital scalp? Is there bitemporal recession? And what are the parietal areas like? And for a patient with long hair, what's the ponytail volume like? I actually often ask the patient at that point, has there been a significant drop in that volume? And what about Apache alopecia? So, if we're dealing with patchy alopecia, then I go and examine the patches in detail. Is there one? Are there many? Individual patches have follicular openings. Could this be alopecia areata, which is a non scarring process? Is the edge active? Do telogen or anagen hairs come out when pulling the hairs at the edge of, of these patches? Or is there loss of those follicular openings? that then determines it's a scarring process. And if so, is there that perifollicular scale again or the erythema? And in alopecia areata, the skin should be normal. But if the patchy loss is in a child and the skin is erythematous, maybe edematous, maybe associated scaling, maybe with some crusting, could this be a tinea capitis? And I also consider the pattern of the patches. If... There is sharp demarcations with odd angles. Could this be trichotillomania where the patient is pulling the hair?
0: You mentioned there that the skin in alopecia areata looks normal. Is there anything else on the skin of the scalp that you look for? Yeah, it
3: is important to generally look at the skin on the scalp because maybe there's evidence of psoriasis or seborrheic dermatitis. Could it be that the alopecia is secondary to scratching or rubbing from pruritus from these conditions.
1: What if you find they're scarring alopecia?
3: If I've decided to scarring alopecia, then I wanna see if I can determine what type of scarring alopecia that is. So I think about the, these aspects. Is there pigmentation and atrophy associated with the scarring? And is there possible adherent scale? Then it could be discoid lupus erythematosus. If this is not the case, and there are broader affected areas, then possibly this could be lichen planopilaris.
0: I've heard there's something called a pull test that's part of the examination. The hair pull test gives one an idea if there is active shedding
3: occurring. One has to use moderate pressure, usually, make several attempts and check to see whether the hairs pulled out are telogen hairs with those wider proximal ends. And if they don't have that, it's possible they could be antigen hairs.
1: I always have my dermatoscope handy in general practice. Is there any way for me to put this to good use with patients presenting with hair loss?
3: Absolutely, Annalise. It's called trichoscopy. One looks for miniaturised hairs, variation of hair density or hair shaft diameter. In alopecia, there can be brown dots in the follicular openings and also dystrophic hair shafts such as the exclamation mark hair, which is narrower at the proximal aspect that is nearer the scalp.
1: What investigations should I consider if someone presents with acute hair loss?
3: Usually investigations are kept to a minimum and it's important to confirm that we need to perform a good history, a clinical examination and baseline photography. But sometimes I order routine bloods, iron studies, TSH, possibly an ANA and occasionally, if appropriate, an androgen screen.
1: It's time for another skin tip. In assessing patients with hair loss, thorough clinical history and examination are essential. Consider also baseline scalp photography. Occasionally, bloods are indicated depending on the clinical situation. Moving on to our first diffuse hair loss,
2: telogen effluvium. What is this, Jane? Telogen effluvium is a common condition, which is really a timing problem of the hair cycle. The main symptom of telogen effluvium is increased hair shedding. Typically, there is some trigger, such as a surgical procedure, or medical illness, or even a psychological stressor, that causes many scalp hair follicles to simultaneously enter telogen, the resting phase. When the telogen phase ends some three to four months later, the telogen hair shafts are all shed synchronously when the follicles re-enter anagen.
0: How do we diagnose telogen effluvium? Do you typically need any special tests?
2: Generally, telogen effluvium is diagnosed on the history and examination, and potentially with a positive hair pull test for multiple telogen hairs.
0: And how do you manage a patient who presents with this to your rooms?
2: Well, with correction of the original trigger, eventually the shedding resolves over a few months as the follicles desynchronise. If there isn't a clear trigger on history or examination, blood tests can be performed to check for possible triggers such as iron or vitamin D deficiency, or a thyroid disorder. While waiting for the hairs to regrow, we can offer cosmetic camouflage and psychological support. Occasionally, topical minoxidil can also be used to help speed up regrowth. Is telogen effluvium always a temporary condition? Sometimes, increased shedding can occur for a prolonged period. If it occurs for more than six months, it is called chronic telogen effluvium.
0: Moving on to our next diffuse form of hair loss, androgenetic alopecia. What confuses me is, doesn't everyone get some hair loss over their lifetime? I thought this was just a guaranteed part of my future.
3: Well, it's very common, and it depends how you define it, but about 50% of women would be experiencing hair loss eventually in men it depends on age and how you define it but it's more like 70 to 80 percent to some degree over the age of 50 years but of course there's an enormous range and it becomes a problem if it's a problem for the patient so the degree of balding and the extent to which the patient is upset doesn't always match it may depend on their job and if they feel they need to portray a younger image Obviously, it's more distressing to the younger patient who has significant balding compared to one who is of more advanced age. And if everyone else in the family has androgenetic alopecia, it may not be as much of an issue as if the patient is the only one. And definitely much more significant of a problem in women, no question. Also, different ethnic groups and cultures have different reactions to hair loss
0: time for another skin tip. Androgenetic alopecia is very common in both men and women. The decision to treat should be based on the impact to the patient.
1: So we've talked about how androgenetic alopecia can present in both men and women. How does this vary?
3: Well, generally men have a more patterned loss, with loss of the frontal hairline often associated with their age, and women have a more diffuse pattern. But in 30% of women, with AGA, they also have significant frontal hairline loss. The other major difference, which I mentioned above, is the emotional reaction. So it's much more significant in women, and I'm repeating this, but that it's important. One needs to handle consultations really sensitively. Don't give your own opinion, such as, well, I don't think you're, you're looking thin because you may not have seen that patient at their
0: baseline density. AGA being, of course, androgenetic alopecia. Yes, yes, that's right. And how is male pattern hair loss diagnosed, male pattern hair loss being the male manifestation of androgenetic alopecia? It's
3: almost always diagnosed clinically. A biopsy is pretty much not needed. And as I said before, we generally don't need to to, um, order investigations.
1: And should we treat male pattern hair loss?
3: Again, it really depends on the patient concern. How bothered is the patient and how motivated are they
0: to seek treatment for it? Let's say we do have a fairly concerned patient. What treatments would you recommend? Topical minoxidil is less commonly used
3: these days because not uncommonly it can irritate the scalp and there is still that small risk of hypertrichosis. So really for men these days, we start with finasteride at a dose of 1 milligram a day and this is quite an effective treatment. It's commonly prescribed and has a low risk of complications. The use of oral minoxidil is a more recent addition in the last five years or so, and it's made an impact with better outcomes. There have been many studies and some systematic reviews showing 60 to 80% of patients obtain some relief, that is, they get some regrowth, but of course, it still could be mild. It varies. It is commonly co-prescribed with the oral finasteride.
1: I've come across minoxidil in general practice where it's been used as a blood pressure medication. Do you use the same doses in treating hair loss?
3: Yeah, it has been used for blood pressure for a long time. No, the doses are much, much lower and the risk of having hypotension from this medication is very, very minimal and I wouldn't really worry about it.
0: What about some surgical procedures? Is there there anything available from that point of view? Yes, so hair transplantation is definitely
3: an option these days, and it's an excellent procedure with a low risk of any issues, and it's come a long way from the way it was performed years ago in the early days. It is also operator-dependent, but the irony is that there are many people walking around with excellent hair transplants not noticed by the general population, unlike the plugs of 40 years ago.
1: Moving on to androgenetic alopecia in women, also known as female
2: pattern hair loss. Jane, what causes this? Female pattern hair loss occurs when thick terminal hairs are converted to progressively thinner hairs, eventually becoming miniaturised vellus hairs. During this process, the hair cycle is also affected, with the anagen or growth phase of the cycle becoming shorter and shorter. It is thought that genetic susceptibility and the influence of androgens or male hormones on the hair follicle contribute to the development of female pattern hair loss. And how does female pattern hair loss present clinically? People with female pattern hair loss often notice hair thinning at the front and top of the scalp, also called the crown or vertex. They may also have thinning at the temples, If you ask, often they will say their ponytail volume is much less than it used to be.
0: Are there any special investigations we should be ordering in suspected female pattern hair loss?
2: In typical cases of female pattern hair loss, usually the diagnosis is made clinically. If there is any doubt about the diagnosis, for example trying to distinguish between female pattern hair loss or diffuse alopecia areata, a scalp biopsy may be performed. If there are features on history or examination that suggest hyperandrogenism, such as irregular periods, severe acne, or hirsutism, a hormonal evaluation may be performed. But most people with female pattern hair loss have normal androgen levels.
0: Let's say that you have a female patient presenting to your rooms. She's quite distressed about the female pattern hair loss. How do you manage this?
2: The treatment is very much tailored to each patient. There is no one-size-fits-all. Many of the treatments overlap with male pattern hair loss. Reassurance, general advice on camouflage options and setting realistic expectations are all important. Female pattern hair loss requires long-term therapy and treatments are generally not safe if patients are planning to start a family. We often also start with topical and systemic minoxidil, with careful titration given the risk of inducing hypertrichosis, anti such as spironolactone and cyproterone acetate are also commonly used. Others, such as 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors, flutamide and bicalutamide are less commonly used and must be prescribed with caution in younger patients, given the risk of teratogenicity. Occasionally, hair transplantation can also be useful, and there is ongoing research into other treatment modalities, for example... Platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, is a treatment currently being explored for this indication, but evidence is still accruing. When should female pattern hair loss be referred? I think a referral can be offered if the patient is not experiencing the expected regrowth, or if they are motivated to explore other options to help manage their hair loss. It is important to know that the clinician-rated severity of hair loss correlates poorly with the patient's own perceived severity and the psychological impact. So even if the hair loss may not be very noticeable, patients may be very keen for treatment.
0: Moving on to our final non-scarring diffuse hair loss of today. Can you tell us a bit about chemotherapy-induced antigen effluvium?
2: Sure, Blake. This form of hair loss occurs as a side effect of cancer treatment particularly chemotherapy. Most cancer cells are rapidly dividing, and chemotherapy works by targeting actively growing cells in the body. It just so happens that anagen hair follicles, which make up the majority of hair follicles on the scalp, also naturally contain highly proliferative cells. So they get caught in the crossfire. Because it is the anagen hair follicles affected, the process is called anagen effluvium. Thankfully... This is usually a temporary side effect. And the hairs grow back after chemotherapy is complete.
1: As a GP, unfortunately, sometimes I have to diagnose a patient with a form of cancer. When this happens, usually one of the first questions I'm asked is whether they are going to lose their hair. Is this a guaranteed side effect
2: of treatment? Oh, not at all. The frequency and severity of hair loss with chemotherapy is influenced by the type of chemotherapy, the dose and the dosing schedule.
0: I've seen scalp cooling be used in patients receiving chemotherapy. Can you tell us about this?
2: Scalp cooling, also known as scalp hyperthermia, is thought to work by constricting blood vessels in the scalp and reducing the metabolic activity of the hairs, and thereby decreasing the amount of chemotherapy medication that reaches the hair follicles. It is the only intervention we have that may lower the risk of chemotherapy-induced alopecia. But it may not always work, and it may not be suitable in all cancer types. So a detailed discussion with the oncologist is necessary.
0: In recognition of having two experts joining us today, we've come up with some tricky, one could say, hairy clinical vignettes to test your knowledge. Jack, a 24 year old gentleman presents to you complaining of a mild recession of his bitemporal hairline and more visible scalp on his crown. He feels it is affecting his confidence on Tinder slash Grinder and wonders what can be done. Well, I would start with a combination of finasteride at one milligram and minoxidil at one milligram.
3: I'd perform baseline photography and the review would occur not earlier than six months. I would also discuss cosmetic camouflage, that is, for example, hair fibres. But I would be holistic, and maybe there's more to his confidence problem than just his hair loss.
1: Jane, we don't want you to miss out. Hermione, a 33-year-old female, presents to you with one to two years of gradual hair loss. She has particularly noticed it from her part-line, She has a past history
2: of PCOS, for which she is taking the oral contraceptive pill. In this patient, hopefully not the one from Harry Potter, hyperandrogenism may be playing a part in worsening her female pattern hair loss. Anti-androgen therapy and multidisciplinary support are critical in ensuring she has the best outcome.
0: And the next scenario is Jacqueline, a 27-year-old female, presents in tears. She's brought in a bag full of her hair that has been falling out dramatically over the past two weeks. Her history is unremarkable except for pyelonephritis three months ago. She's googled on the internet that hair loss happens with cancer and is very worried that this might be the case for her.
3: Well, I'll confidently reassure her after a proper assessment, of course, that this is a telogen effluvium. And we have a reason for which it's occurring. That's the pyelonephritis. And the timing is appropriate to explain the hair loss. And I would also explain that the prognosis is excellent.
0: That concludes our first episode on hair loss. We hope we've increased your awareness or hairness. That is awareness of causes of hair loss.
1: Thank you, Jack and Jane, for coming in and sharing your expertise with us. Tune in next episode as we focus on patchy hair loss.
0: We would also like to thank the creative genius... Creative Director and Oversight of Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute, as well as the education team at the Skin Health Institute.
1: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these episodes are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner.
0: For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. Don't forget to join us in part two when we will talk about patchy hair loss, such as alopecia areata.
1: Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear your feedback and any suggestions. Please also leave us a review.